Okay, take two. Here we go. Take two. Uh. So, um, we got to start from the beginning because uh, we got about half an hour into recording and then uh, I clicked something wrong and lost all the audio. So, uh, this is a Patreon podcast. Um, this is the bonus episode going to all tiers called Sporadic History with Devin, in which Devin tells us about something from history. Uh, I'm Devin. <laughs> Hi, Devin. I'm the person who's talking now. Yay. Uh, so, this is a fun sort of sporadic extra thing. Um, so, what are we learning about today? Well, uh, you gave me a reference point of hearing the names of both D-Day and Battle of the Bulge as the names of two battles or campaigns during World War II that you had heard of. Uh, I decided to go with the Battle of the Bulge since that took place. It's a little less complicated yeah. than D-Day. So. Fewer moving parts, at least a couple. Yes. All right. So uh, where are we in the war? Okay. So this, this is um, towards the end of World War II. This is this battle is specifically going to take place roughly from the 16th of December 1944 to January 25th of 1945. Okay. Um, and so just so in the timeline of the war in general, mm-hmm. like you were mentioning the. The it ends in May of forty five. Yeah, well, so, in Europe, but in yes, Europe, yeah. in Europe, it ends in May of forty five, um, having been officially declared in September of thirty nine yes. in Europe. So, little over five years in, and a little under six months left to go. Though they yeah. didn't know it at the time. Yes. Yeah. So, um, where geographically is it? Uh, so where we are going to mostly be talking about is going to start with the border of Germany, Luxembourg, and Belgium. Okay. So it's December of 1944. Yes. And uh, what's happening in December of 44 around these borders to prompt the Battle of the Bulge? Uh, so, you know, at this point... This is after June of 44 when D-Day occurs, which is the uh, Western Allies, America, Britain, France, uh, Canada, and so forth, invading uh, occupied France. And this is several months after that uh, where they've been pushing to liberate France. And they've reached about the border. They've liberated Luxembourg and Belgium and part of the Netherlands. And they've essentially kind of run out of steam. They've been pushing really hard since June, and they've only recently captured some ports in Belgium and the Netherlands, so they kind of need to stop to figure out their supply lines, and they also need some of their troops to rest. Uh, So they're kind of stalling near the German border. Okay. And it's starting to get cold, and... As it does in Europe in in, In the winter. winter. Yes. (laughs) So it's starting to get cold and they're like, how about we learn from Napoleon and don't get close to Russia in the winter? (laughs) So they're like, let's stop here near this river-ish. Yes. Right? Uh, Yeah, it's all those rivers that run near the German and French border. Uh, The critical one for the Germans is the Rhine. Rhine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so uh, the Western Allies are starting to get kind of lose steam for the winter. Yeah. And then uh, what are the Germans doing? Uh, so the Germans, um, they're in a rough spot, as you are when you're at war with basically the entire rest of the Earth. Whoopsie doodle. Uh, so they have uh, the Soviet Union in the east uh, advancing uh, through Poland and now into Germany, I believe, at this point. So they're... Germans starting to get squished from all sides. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, um, I'm going to probably just read through this overview real quick. Okay. Just to this kinda... is from uh, The Atlas of World War II uh, by Dr. John Pimlott. Um, it's got... It's really cool. It's a really interesting resource where, like, they have a bunch of different maps, and then they'll show... They'll have, like, a color key of where the border was and where... And where people were Moving going and, and yeah. arrows and it's all color-coded. It's really cool. Yeah. So I'm just going to read uh, kind of their overview. Uh, so starting in September of 1944, Hitler began preparation, uh, to prepare a counterattack in the West designed to disrupt the Allied advance and allow a concentration of German troops against the Soviets. Um, specifically what he's hoping is if he can uh, attack, encircle, and destroy a lot of the Allied armies in the West, he has deluded himself into thinking he can get them to sign a peace treaty with him. Okay. And then he can move all of his troops to the East to fight the Soviets. Going, you were mentioning earlier, going by way of Antwerp, which is just charging through like the entirety of the Western Front at this point. Yeah, he's going to basically <laughs> go the entire length of Belgium and then he'll try to wipe out all the Allied troops in Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, problem one with that plan, uh, all of the Allies are in the way. Yes. Uh, you have seen the dilemma. Yes. So, continuing... Uh, Serious planning began in October, by which time a stalemate had set in on the West. Uh, Allied uh, dispositions were clear. A glance at the map shows that the two U.S. armies of Omar Bradley, commanding the 12th Army Group, were advancing on on divergent axes, split by the thinly held Ardennes. Uh, attached to the uh, attached to the region by the memories of the successful invasion of France in May of 1940, Hitler aimed to break through, cross the River Meuse, and recapture Brussels and Antwerp. Okay. Thus, splitting the Allies in two and forcing them onto the defensive. Okay. Uh, the operation was codenamed Watch am Rhine, which is Watch on the Rhine in. English. Okay. Uh, Their hope was that it would do enormous damage uh, to the Allied morale and might even cause them to collapse. Okay. So, So, again, he's gonna have to go through, like, the entirety of the localized Western Front. Number one. Number two, he's gonna have to leave some units of some capacity to at least stave off the Russians. Yes. And, like, how are you going to get to Antwerp? Are you going to, like, do carriages? Are you going to do, like, tanks? Are you going to do... Well, under this, uh, 
this is a problem that Hitler's generals understand, even his most loyal ones. Uh, they point out to him that Germany probably only has enough fuel for this to get probably a third, maybe half of the way to Antwerp. So, um, then what, you're just going to be shed out of luck in enemy territory? Well, yeah, the, their idea is, well, the Allies have started to resupply, which means they have a bunch of supply depots, which means <laughs> if we go fast enough, we can capture them and we'll extend our range by capturing the enemy's fuel. Okay, are they going to capture the fuel and are they also going to, like, destroy all the radios and shit, or...? Well, yeah, this is another thing where they're they're very they do end up successfully having the element of surprise. Okay. But of course, that only lasts so long because once you start fighting people and advancing, people are going to be like, "Oh, there are Germans. They're not supposed to be here. I should tell someone." Yeah. See, that's the thing is that like, if it had been, I don't know, if they had thought to like. First disable the radios, and then capture the things, they'll be like, okay, seems sus, but at least you're thinking about the whole picture. Mm -hmm. But um, they didn't think that anyone was going to... They thought they were just going to, like, not radio ahead. Like, heads up, we fought a bunch of Germans. Uh, we could not forestall them. They're heading your way and looking for... Uh, fuel. Fuel. So maybe so, you should move it or burn it. <laughs> yeah. Or just be prepared. Uh, it's just sort of like, why? Why? Yeah, <laughs> it's it's a common thing in military tactics where they say a bad plan is one that requires your enemy to be both to be stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I don't know. Part of me is like, I feel like I write a book about. Not this, this battle in particular, but this whole philosophy of, like, there are so many moving parts here. And, it, like, in order for things to go correctly, all of the moving parts have to move at exactly the right time. In the exactly the right way that you're thinking about. And, um, with 0% for human error. And the Allies have not been given this script. So... <laughs> How can they do their blocking correctly, according to the Germans, if they don't know what page they're on? Can you tell I was a theater kid? Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, the German forces are moved into position with great secrecy. We're reading from the book again. You're reading from the book again. Uh, taking advantage of winter weather and Allied complacency. Because at this point, you know, the Allies are on the border of Germany. It's like, the war is basically over. Yeah. Um... Unfortunately, it wasn't quite the case. Okay. Um, I mean, five more months after this, so you know. Yeah, so they're not entirely wrong. Um, uh, by mid-December of 1944, a total of 25 divisions, uh, 10 of them are armored, which means they're all like tanks and so forth. Okay. Um, so a little under half. Um, we're in place, uh, divided into three armies. In the north, it was commanded by SS General Josef Sepp Dietrich, of the 6th Panzer Division. Uh, he was the one to advance on Antwerp. Uh, so I purposely read that part because uh, Sepp Dietrich has a very interesting life story. Okay. Uh, he basically started as like a street thug and then after World War One, and then he became Hitler's bodyguard. 
and okay. was Hitler's bodyguard basically through all the way through like the first half of the war, so like 1942-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he pissed off um, Heinrich Himmler, who was the head of the SS, which is the secret police of Nazi Germany. Oh, he was the one who thought gas chambers were a good idea. Yeah, that guy. Great guy. Should have been a state of chicken farmer. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Wait, he started as a chicken farmer? Uh, yeah, I think he went to, like, agriculture college or something in Germany. Yeah, he should have stayed a chicken farmer. Yeah, he was, yeah. It, Nazis all have very weird backstories. Uh, so, Tessif Dietrich. I yeah. wonder, digression. Yes. Um, I wonder if he was thinking about what he learned in agriculture college. Because that's a very inhumane way to kill humans. A slightly more humane way to kill livestock. Yeah, it's... The, the Nazis are a very strange breed because you have Hitler who's a failed art student. And then you have Hitler who's this chicken farmer who was just... Was too young to be in World War One, so he didn't get to be a man fighting the Great War and all that. So you have all these guys that are kind of nerds with, like, weird mental complexes. like About the fact that they're nerds and not adhering to a toxic standard of masculinity. Yeah, there's there's a little bit of that in it. Um, okay, uh, digression for them, the digression, and then we're going to get back. Um, I heard a theory once that part of the reason there was so many serial killers in the like 60s through the 80s is because all of these young men grew up with uh, traumatized uh, veterans for fathers and uh, did not have any role model... In best case scenario, they didn't have a role model for positive masculinity because the dad had died. Uh, all the way into the dad did not deal with their trauma and therefore took it out on all of the children. Mm-hmm. And somehow that gave all of these serial killers like a fucked up way of thinking about what love and affection should be. And in a re- complicated relationship with violence. Yes. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> yeah, so... Sip-Dietrich... Yeah. He ends up running afoul of Heinrich Himmler, and Heinrich Himmler is like, well, you're part of the SS as Hitler's bodyguard, so technically you answer to me. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to shove you in an army unit on the Eastern Front to go fight the Soviet Union, because I don't like you. Okay, so, and this is Himmler speaking to... Sepp Dietrich, yeah. Sepp Dietrich, who yeah. was the former thug yeah. bodyguard. And okay. then, yeah, and now here is where his life has taken him. He's now commanding a tank unit on the Western Front. Okay, so uh, Sub Dietrich is in charge on the Western Front, and uh, so it's we get to December, and the Nazis are like, we are absolutely able to take Antwerp, and we are absolutely able to do so by capturing a bunch of like fuel and such from all of the allies that we're going to encounter on the way to Antwerp, and they're definitely not going to uh, use their radios in order to warn anybody else. Um, so we get to mid-December. Yes. And uh, what happens? Oh, uh, yeah. So um, I just want to finish going through these other commanders' names because okay. they're fun. So uh, there's Sub Dietrich. Yeah, he's commanding this panzer unit that's going to go attack Antwerp. Okay. And then you have, in the center, you have General Hasso van Moenteufel. Okay. Who's commanding the 5th Panzer. Which is okay. 5th, he's going to go to Brussels. And then you have in the south, the 7th Army, under General Eric Brandenburgers. 
Okay, so the, uh, what I'm learning is that they just choose people by how aggressively German their names are. Yep. Uh, and so you say it's like one's in the middle and one's in the south. So are they going to do like a, are they all going to run vaguely parallel to one another? Yeah. Or so as opposed to like one's going to go, you said one of them's going to go to Brussels and one of them's going to go to Antwerp and one's going to Yeah, go. and they're, it's sort of on the way. It's just sort of like, where's your civic location? And okay. who's kind of protecting whose, like, sides. Okay, so, but they're all three roughly in a line. They can see each other if one of them gets blown up. And, yeah, roughly. And uh, they're all aiming eventually towards Antwerp? Or Yeah, okay. they're going to capture these other important places. So they're ca- going to capture all of these important places on the way. Yeah. And raid all of their fuel <laughs> and uh, not destroy all their radios and stuff yes okay. obviously what could possibly go wrong all right uh so the attack begins to 16th of december okay uh so they start with an artillery bombardment uh they were denied air cover because of overcast skies the allies could do little to prevent a breakthrough although enough of them held out in isolation isolated pockets to disrupt uh german movement uh in the north there was a parachute assault uh, behind American lines that was scattered by high winds. Uh, I mentioned you a little bit in the first recording about the paratroopers. Oh, yeah, the tried it twice and didn't work either time. Yeah, so this is famous because this is the last time the Germans are going to use paratroopers. Okay. Um, the last big time they did it was to capture the island of Crete when the Germans and Italians invaded Greece back in 1941. And yes, Lisa, as we discovered at that time, there probably was the destruction of a bunch of historical artifacts during the uh, German invasion. I hate it so much. I know. Um, Just another reason to hate the Nazis. Just just when you think you had enough, because they're they're just, they give you so many reasons. So many. Um, They also uh, destroy ancient artifacts that they probably wanted to preserve or would have if they'd known. I minored in classics in undergrad. And so, uh, and I went to, um, if you're ever in London, there's the London Mithraeum, uh, which is a Roman temple to uh, minor sun god Mithros. And um, I'm looking at my Timer of Pierce books now and realizing that's probably where she got the name of the main sun god Mithros. (laughs) Um, But she but uh part of what they said at the mithraeum is that like both revealing their existence but also probably not their actual original physical location yeah and so something probably happened similar with crete except uh crete is a much older language um i could probably or much older culture uh if you've heard of the minoans look or even if you haven't look them up they're old yes they are Anyway, so, uh, paratroopers. Yeah. Uh, wind up being sort of an O for two because the incidents on Crete didn't really happen well either. Yeah, they, they succeed in capturing Crete, but because of the, the, the stra- the, the great defense by the locals and the, uh, exiled troops of the Greek army and the British army stationed there, uh, they take huge losses. Okay. Um... So they're kind of terrified of ever using them again. But now they're kind of, at this point, they're so desperate now in the end of 44 that they're just like, fine, we'll try it. 
Yeah, because it's sort of, what, six months left of the war, even though they don't know it at the time, so they're really getting to spaghetti on the wall. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're, they're throwing whatever they can and seeing what sticks. Yeah, and so the paratroopers do not stick except probably a little bit to the ground. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was very morbid, <laughs> but, you know. I mean, they're Nazi paratroopers, so it's okay. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, yeah. Let's see, wait, wait, wait. Uh, yes. Um, and we're reading from the book again. Reading from the book again. In the north, uh, the paratroopers assault, scattered by high winds. Uh, the U.S. 2nd and 9th Infantry Division pulled back to the Elmsbourne Ridge, uh, creating a shoulder uh, that held firm. To their right, the spearhead of the 1st SS Panzer Division. Wow, that is a name. <laughs> Made some progress by the 17th of December, so that's the second day. Uh, but was soon uh, contained. Uh, Dietrich's only success came uh, at the Shell, the Shell Elif, uh, where inexperienced U.S. soldiers from the 106th Infantry Division were overwhelmed. Uh, Menteufel advanced more, approaching St. Vith and Bastogne, vital road junctures in the Ardennes. After pushing through the 28th Infantry Division along Skyline Drive, but to his south, uh, Brandenburgers failed to make much progress. By the 18th, so this is two days in, a bulge had developed in the Ardennes and the assault was running out of steam. Okay. So far? Okay. Yeah, so this is where we get the, the bulge. This is the... The eponymous Battle yeah. of the Bulge. Yeah, the, this, my understanding is the name The Bulge comes from the fact that eventually after the battle they released like kind of maps of how the battle had gone to the press. Okay. And they were like, oh, it looks like a giant bulge in the Allied lines. Alright. Um, and uh, so actually on that note, you know, this is more often called... The official name the Allies used was the Ardennes... Uh, counteroffensive. Um, the Ardennes is this wooded area that they're fighting in that kind of straddles the Belgium, German, and Luxembourg borders. Okay. The Ardennes is the forest. Yes. Yeah. The Ardennes okay. forest. Cool. So, so, yeah, go ahead. Unfortunately for the Germans, uh, Eisenhower did not panic. He moved reserves into the threatened region. He divided responsibility for its defense between his subordinates. Omar Bradley and Bernard Montgomery. Uh, Omar Bradley is his American subordinate. We name a uh, infantry fighting vehicle after him. If you've ever heard of something called the Bradley, it's named after Omar Bradley. And this is when Eisenhower is a soldier, not a president. Yeah, this is when he's uh, commander of uh, the Western Allies. Okay. And then uh, Bernard Montgomery. Oh, he's fun. I will probably tell a story about him in a second. At the same time, he ordered General George S. Patton, uh, south of the Bulge, to mount a counterattack. St. Vith held out until the 21st of December, so it's a week, give or take, at which time Montgomery had consolidated the fences of the northern section. And although Bastogne was held by the 10th Armor and 101st Airborne Division, who are also called the Screaming Eagles, there is a really good song about them by Sebastian. By who? Uh, Sebastian. I'm not familiar. I with think it. I've showed you to them. 
Yes. We'll go over this later. Yeah. Um, so the 10th Armor and the 101st Airborne Division were surrounded. Uh, they stood like a, a rock against the stream of German advances. Uh, some German units bypassed Baston but ran out of fuel before reaching the Meurs. By the 26th of December, Patton had broken through to uh, relieve Baston from the south and created a new focus for, the German, in, uh, for German attention. Although there was still much fighting left, the crisis had passed. Once the assault had been contained, the Allies squeezed the bulge from north and south. Hitler wasted his remaining reserves in an aborted assault against the nearby mountains on the 31st of December, leaving little of which to face the Allied onslaught. By the 15th of January, 1945, the Allies linked up in the center of the bulge by the end of the month, the battle was over. In the process, the Germans had lost nearly 120,000 men and irreplaceable equipment. Are you? And that's the Battle of the Bulge. Yeah. All right. Uh, so uh, with that, a few things. Um, we mentioned the paradrop. Another interesting tactic the Germans tried, as I mentioned in the first recording, uh, was they had German soldiers who could speak English dress up in captured U.S. uniforms and vehicles and attempt to try to infiltrate behind the lines. Didn't really work out too well, mostly because they got slowed down or, you know, they'd screw up and one of them would say something in German. Mm. But you said they were pretty successful in causing at least some panic. Yeah. Yes, the uh, the few events that they actually did cause caused a bunch of panic, especially in the U.S. military, because they thought there was a ton of infiltrators. This actually led to two incidents I want to quickly mention. One of them was uh, Eisenhower was basically holed up um, in this, like, French chateau where he had his command center. Because mm -hmm. uh, they were afraid the Germans were going to try to assassinate him. Okay. And there was a story of a messenger driving up in a in a car and didn't signal correctly for the guards, and like Eisenhower's assistant like almost started to unload into the car with a machine gun because they thought it was an assassin. <laughs> Luckily, no one was hurt. <laughs> supposedly, if I remember the story, but yes, it was. They were they were terrified that something was going to happen. Uh, the other famous one is, um, I mentioned the British commander under Eisenhower was Bernard Montgomery. Okay. Uh, he was a very sort of, very big ego British commander. Um, he had fought a lot in the early war in Africa and done very well. So he was very like, I can do whatever I want. And he uh, basically tried to blow past an American checkpoint. And the Americans were like, you didn't signal correctly. So it turned into a fist fight between American soldiers trying to restrain him and his men because they hadn't signaled correctly because they were afraid they might have been spies. If you ever get so on edge, you just punch your own colleague in the face. <laughs> anyway, so is that all of your thoughts on the Battle of the Bulge? Uh, unless you had any uh, particular questions, that's kind of the overview. Uh, not in particular. Uh, I will also be posting a poll on Patreon for our current zero patrons. If we do have someone sign up who wants to uh, have a different topic, they can weigh in because that's the perk is that one of the perks is that you can vote in the polls. So I'll post a poll uh, for different sporadic history with Devin episode. But thanks y'all for joining us. Thank you, Devin. Uh, for that history lesson, and I am going to 
stop now before I mess up any more audio. Goodbye. <laughs>